This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to cover the book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X by Malcolm X, as told to Alex Haley. Now, as for who recommended the book, I'll go ahead and turn that over to you, Eric. Yeah, and that's Casey Neistat, a New York-based filmmaker and YouTuber. He says this is his favorite book of all time, and uh, this book is also, in 1998, Time Magazine ranked it the 10th, uh, or, or one of the 10 most influential nonfiction books of the 20th century. So it has has that going for it. Which is nice. <laughs> As for the uh, about the author, this is uh, obviously an autobiog- autobiography. So it is uh, by Malcolm 10, uh, or that is um, Malcolm X, uh, and uh, Alex Haley as well. Now, as for Malcolm X... Uh, formerly Malcolm Little, but then uh, became a member of the Nation of Islam and dropped the uh, the last name for the letter X for reasons we'll uh, discuss a little bit later, but uh, actually some pretty good reasons. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, Malcolm X is considered to be one of the greatest and most influential African Americans in history. Uh, he had a tumultuous childhood and... Um, <laughs> kind of an unreal if you read this book the the what what happened in, what he did in his teens and the amount of action uh and the number of things and uh and and the amount of mischief that he managed to get into adult mischief that he managed to get into as a teenager is remarkable mm-hmm. uh in throughout this book uh eventually wound up in prison uh due to his role in uh basically a burglary ring and also uh, having white women uh, who were attached to him and one of his uh, fellows in that uh, burglary ring, uh, in that whole thing, upped their sentences a good bit. Uh, he converted to the Nation of Islam in, uh, in prison and completely uh, transformed his life, beginning to preach the message of Elijah Muhammad and... Uh, the Nation of Islam, uh, a, a basically a black, uh, a, a nationalist and separatist uh, form of sort of political or uh, political religion. Uh, it's a difficult thing to define exactly, as anybody who's ever studied religion will tell you that those things uh, oftentimes uh, very much uh, overlap. You know, ethno religion to some degree, uh, but then eventually later uh, had a bit of a falling out with. Elijah Muhammad, for whom he had uh, evangelized so thoroughly for so many years and had sort of become the face of the Nation of Islam, perhaps even more than Elijah Muhammad by that point, but uh, eventually later embraced Sunni Islam and uh, became uh, the founder of Muslim Mosque Incorporated and the Organization of African American Unity, that is the OAAU. And then after that... uh, Embrace of Sunni Islam and turning away from the nation of Islam and the separation from uh, Elijah Muhammad, he was uh, sadly assassinated in February of 1965 by members of the nation of Islam, 
uh, who were upset with his separation from uh, from Elijah Muhammad and and uh, perceived apostasy there. So uh, the rest of the book of uh, the book is of course put together by him, uh, or there it's told uh, by him to Alex Haley, who serves as his as the as the actual writer of the book. Uh, Again, this is an autobiog- autobiography as told to Alex Haley. And uh, for more information about Alex Haley, I'll go ahead and turn it back over to Eric. Yeah, Alex Haley is most well-known for uh, being the author of Roots, the saga of an American family. That was a, turned into a TV program, I know, when Such I was a devastating a show. Yeah, I, I didn't see it. I mean, I, I remember, I, I think my parents watched, watched it, and so I would, I would walk in the room and, and it would be on. Uh, and so I, I, I can actually remember disturbing images from that series, but um, I never watched the uh, the entire thing. Uh, the The epilogue of this book, the autobiography of Malcolm X, was was really interesting, and, and that of course is is written by Alex Haley, and where he describes the the whole process of of putting this book together and meeting with with Malcolm X. And Malcolm X, starting with him telling telling him that he he uh, trusted him twenty five percent, and uh, I think he got he got all the way up to seventy percent of trust from Malcolm X, and and that was that was quite an achievement. So um, uh, really interesting in that in that sense. This uh, this was published in nineteen sixty five, so the the same year as the assassination. Uh, but yeah, the, the epilogue really helps kind of tie everything together and, and, uh, was a great piece of this, of this book. So, uh, getting into our, before we, before we go on, I do want to, I do want to put in a disclaimer here at the beginning of the show, uh, that this, uh, this book obviously includes, uh, a fair amount of very controversial material in terms of, uh, uh, I don't even know that I want to say controversial, but very, very, uh, very charged material, uh, f- and and language also that in 1965 certain terms were uh, were were more common, uh, more commonly preferred, uh, rather than some of the ways that these these terms are used to, uh, today. Uh, so some of the language that uh, and and some of the topics and 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 uh, aspects of discussion that will uh, come up in over the course of this uh, podcast. The, some of those, some of the language as we read these quotes and so on, that language uh, is in the book. It's something that we shouldn't shy away from, and the 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 subject matter here, I think, is very very important, and it's important for people of all races in the United States, in particular, but also elsewhere, to be aware of how how all this stuff is is is, is done in this book, and we're going to try to uh, give us unvarnished. A, a look at this as possible. However, uh, as uh, as as two men who are not in who are not black, we will avoid uh, vocalizing a particular uh, word that that typically in the mouth of non-black speakers carries a uh, uh, carries the uh, it, it, it's used as a racial slur. It's used frequently throughout the book, and we are going to avoid that. Uh, also, even when we're we're uh, reading portions of the book and so on, uh, but uh, 
in that sense, this is just sort of the uh, listener discretion advised and also a little bit of, uh, of insight in how we're going to handle some of those, uh, those matters in this book. So figured I'd go ahead and put that up front. Now uh, we can go ahead and get to the overview and initial reactions. Yeah, and I'll start out here. Uh, just first off, I, I knew next to nothing about Malcolm X and the, the things that I thought I knew were, were wrong. Um, I, I, I thought he was just more of a, a violent version of Martin Luther King. And I actually thought that he started the black Panthers and I don't, I don't know where I got that. I don't know if that was from movies. I mean, I, I have a, a vision in my head of, of him being portrayed in movies and carrying guns and stuff. And, and so I, I don't, I don't know where that connection with, with the black Panthers came, but, but that. He did not start them, and and um, no, that was Bobby Seale and Huey Newton, and actually the Black Panthers didn't start until 1966, which uh, was after uh, the death of uh, Malcolm X. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm you know kind of a, kind of ashamed of that of of not knowing more about him before that, but but I'm on the other other hand glad I, glad I read this book to uh, to learn more about about him and, and his life and, and tying that in with, with the, uh, the sort of the disclaimer that you just gave it, it, it was one of the most disturbing books I've ever read. Necessarily disturbing though. As, as yes. I, as I, you know, in my view, this is the, this is the kind of necessarily disturbing book that needs to be read. Yep. And, and that was the, the next thing that I had written is that I'm glad I read it. There's another book in in our list of 52 this year that was as disturbing, and I wish I had never read it. But but this one, <laughs> yeah, we haven't disturbing. yet covered that one. <laughs> yeah, this one was disturbing, and I'm glad I read it. Um, and what made it disturbing were, were things that happened to Malcolm X, things that he did, things that were done to him in the name of religion. Uh, and then obviously ultimately his, his assassination. But, um, I, I, I just made a list of the things that were, <laughs> that happened even before he was alive in, in his life. Uh, and I, I just want to read through these to, to get a, a I guess, a, a glimpse of what, what this man went through. And, and this was part of his, his desire to, to share this with Alex Haley for this to come out and to share, and, and to not hold anything back. I mean, it's some, just some really terrible things that happen and he, he doesn't shy away from them. So beginning before he was born, his mother has lighter skin and it's a, it's a result of her mother being raped by a white man. By, by, so, by her, presumably by her slave master is, is mm-hmm. or, you know, her, her, uh, whether slave master or servant, uh, you know, the, her effectively her employer or her slave master. I'm not sure exactly when that that fell, but yeah. Ay. And so, it, it, even Malcolm X in it during his life has has lighter skin than than even some of his other family members, and is 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 treated better because of that. Um, except so by his mother. <laughs> except by his mother, yeah, who who takes it out on on him for that. Um. So even before he's born, that happens. His father is killed by white people when Malcolm X is six and brutally murdered. Just a devastating death. 
And and not only that, <laughs> they have a nice. His father was always proud of the nice life insurance policy he had. Yeah, and then he, he, they wouldn't give it to him because they they said it was a suicide, right? Yeah, the 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 insurance company basically said we're not paying you because you know well it could have been a suicide. Yeah, of course because you know he clearly bashed his own skull in and uh, and laid himself in 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 the path of a uh, of a streetcar afterwards that was uh, kind of an impressive suicide mm -hmm. uh that devastated his mother to the point where she was taken to a, an insane asylum for for many years uh his house burned down he had a white teacher who told him not to pursue law yeah because well you got to be realistic maybe you should go into carpentry god yeah that was that was the the quote uh, just a, a really disturbing section on what's called conking hair. So getting uh, basically straightening hair, but it's, it's a violent and painful procedure to get, to get the hair to do that. And, and the point was to try to get it to look like a white person's hair. And, and, and for those of you who are not familiar with this, we'll, we'll put some links up to, uh, uh, to what this this hairstyle looks like but you would be familiar with it you've seen this if you've watched any movies with black men in it say from the 1920s to through the 50s basically because it was a very popular way particularly for say black uh, musicians that you'll see uh in in various movies uh where it's it's a it's basically uh applying a relaxer you in and, and like uh, like you said eric it's a um uh, it's with uh, it, it, the the typical f formula that they would use for for uh, for that sort of thing would be with lye <laughs> relaxer, which you know essentially burns uh, the scalp if uh, with with exposure. But uh, basically, what it all it does is it takes normally kinky hair and it straightens it out uh, with a gel like little substance and, and again uh, the way that they would normally do it is with potato starch egg protein and, and lye and then you know you put to, put your gloves on and then wash it through the hair but make sure it doesn't not much of it touches a scalp or it's going to burn you uh, but it was very popular then because it would make your hair more like a white man's hair instead of you know ha having more of a, a, a kinky um, or curly uh, look like what you would see uh with a natural black man's hair so yeah he talks a lot about that but we'll put up we'll put up a, a, a link to what this is all about in the show notes uh and and one thing I, I forgot too about his childhood is that once his father was killed and then his mother took a turn for the worse um the state divided up the family um and the state was even kind of part of of uh of the mother taking a a, a bad turn um, yeah, because when just, they when they kept coming in and, and, and intervening in family life, they found basically they kept undermining her, and eventually she she broke. She lost it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. As as he uh, puts it here, I think this is a good place for this quote. I truly believe that if ever a state social agency destroyed a family, it destroyed ours. We mm. wanted and tried to stay together. Our home didn't have to be destroyed, but the welfare, the courts. And their doctor gave us the one, two, three punch, and ours was not the only case of this kind. <laughs> and then yeah. he, he follows up with that. Hence, I have no mercy or compassion in me 
for a society that will crush people and then penalize them for not being able to stand up under the weight. That's a devastating quote. Yeah. And, and, and he's absolutely right in, yeah. in, in saying that. And, and that's one of the things and, and to, to get into some of the, 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 my initial reaction to this, to this book, especially the, the first, say, eight or nine chapters, one of the things that really just so stuck out to me was how vivid and raw his descriptions of, uh, of poverty and the underworld and the way that people are trying, trying basically to just survive and then not just to survive, but to either narcotize or find ways to assuage the poverty or to, to, to basically ease the pain of how poorly life is going and how this is happening. As he put it, you know, when he visited Washington, D.C., he was struck by how there was worse poverty than he'd ever seen in his life, only a few blocks from the White House. And he's mm-hmm. like, how could this be? And this is one of those things that all too often, and my guess is that if you're a listener of this podcast, you're as guilty as the rest of us on this. All too often, we ignore the fact that within a few blocks, it doesn't take walking a mile from most of where we all live to all of a sudden be among people that are living in squalor or poverty that we that we would never actually imagine people are actually living in. Mm-hmm. And yet, how many of us actually do anything about it? And that's, that's one of the things that really comes up over and over again in this is, you know, it, it's a, a stark reminder that, yeah, people lived like that then. And people live like that today. Mm-hmm. And we have a society and a system that is very much set up so that people do end up in those in those cases, in, those, in that situation. And we really aren't in position where, you know, the, where uh, most of us are, have a whole lot of concern with that, so long as we're not the ones that wind up there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that that was one of my immediate responses to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, continuing on in the disturbing parts of of the book, now we get more into what um, what he himself initiated uh, after that, that uh, unbelievably traumatic childhood. He starts dating a girl and ends up devastating and ruining her. by taking her to a to a club one night and 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 choosing to go home with a white woman instead of Laura the the woman that he brought he said this later in the book he said this was his greatest regret and Laura this this girl who is kind of on a promising path uh, it it just devastates her to where she turns to a life of drugs and and it 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 just absolutely ruins her um, because they they've been seeing each other for a while and, and moving forward and then um, just Malcolm X just all of a sudden one night just ditch, ditches her and and goes goes with the white woman who he he then sees for for quite a while yeah through that white woman's marriage too mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah just. And and one of the one of the quotes that stuck out to me there, uh, he said, you know, Laura, about this 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 woman Laura, he says, 
and, and again, she was a junior in high school when he was, when, when this all happened, she was, you know, just, just finishing high school. He said, life did deal her cruel blows starting with her meeting me. <laughs> That's pretty remarkable candor. Yeah. And on and self-honesty. Uh, at that moment. And, and that's something that gave me a tremendous amount of respect for him at different points is where he was, he was very, uh, he was able to, to, to introspect and self-criticize and say, no, you know what? This was completely wrong of me. This was, this was evil. This was bad. This was how I, but this was how I thought. Mm-hmm. And his, his total candor about that is just <laughs> amazing. And, yeah. and later on he says uh, of what, uh, when he when he first picked her up where Laura's grandmother was, he said she'd have done us all a favor if she'd run screaming for the police. If something looking as and notice he says something, if something looking as I did then ever came knocking at my door today asking to see one of my four daughters, I know I would explode. <laughs> Talking about himself. Yeah. And it's just it, it's remarkable. Yeah. Uh, one of his best friends is, uh, Sammy, uh, uh, who we hear a lot about him in, in the, in the, Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. Is a a pimp who would date lonely women and then duplicate their keys, rob them, and then offer an opportunity to pay back what they lost through prostitution. And I, 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 when I'm reading this, I, I, I can't imagine many worse things that you could do to somebody than to, uh, to, to do that. And, and this, this is the kind of thing that keeps happening in the book and um, that, that's part of his, his early life. And he does give a description of why he goes into all this. And, and as you said, there's the, the brutal honesty um, he says, I, I want to say before I go on that I've never previously told anyone my sordid past in detail. I haven't done it now to sound as though I might be proud of how bad, how evil I was. But people are always speculating, why am I as I am? To understand that of any person, his whole life from birth must be reviewed. All of our experiences fuse into our personality. Everything that ever happened to us is an ingredient. Today, when everything that I do has an urgency, I would not spend one hour in the preparation of a book which had the ambition to perhaps titillate some readers. But I am spending many hours because the full story is the best way I know to have it seen and understood that I had sunk to the very bottom of the American white man's society when, soon now in prison, I found Allah in the religion of Islam and it, it, it completely transformed my life. So that that's why he he says he goes into the in into the hit, all the detail about his past um but to your point too with with just the brutal honesty of of his his past and that that being a really amazing part of this book i it was a really important part of his character too to where he would he would change his opinion quickly if one, once he found out that he was was wrong on something uh, and, and it happens quite often in in the book, and that that was also a really, a really neat part to to see. Um, I, yeah, it it, it, it it happened a lot, and and we'll we'll get into that later on in the book. But but things that he had said and and said on on 
news interviews and, and multiple speeches, one, once he realized that, that that wasn't the case anymore, he, he would he wouldn't try to to fight for for that and, and to, to, to try to hold on to it, but would um, would just get rid of it, be honest with it and, and move forward with with the new the new thing that he had learned. Yeah, I was. I, I, well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll keep going there because there's another point I want to make a little bit later that probably be suited later. So let's go ahead and move, you've got I think a little bit more here before we. Okay. Before we move yeah, in. just the 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 disturbing parts of the book. Uh, he 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 gets into selling drugs and then steering white people from the broad, the Broadway area to Harlem to to be with black prostitutes. Uh, he went from selling drugs to then taking drugs. And then as you highlighted earlier, he, he eventually gets caught and he spent seven years in prison. His prison mates call him Satan. In initially, prison. initially, initially. Yeah. Before, before <laughs> his transformation. Um, and then while, while in prison, he hears about the nation of Islam and then it, it, it gets into, to just these crazy, uh, island of Patmos thing. Did, did yeah? Well, all of that, all of that is basic uh, uh, nation of Islam uh, uh, theology in terms of um, and and anthropology. You know, teachings of Elijah Muhammad that he's putting forward there. Uh, stuff that he eventually. It's interesting because you know he puts it forward and it sounds like he's really accepting it. And you can see, you can hear like that this is something that he he clearly preached for a long time, and then all of a sudden he just comes and says, yeah, well, when I actually got exposed to the real Islam later on, I realized that this was all basically made up, made up uh, uh, because, you know, that he was able to make this, this these nice stories up uh, that were convincing simply because the alternatives weren't, uh, weren't there, so... <laughs> Yeah, here here it is. It says, um, I was later to learn, or I was to learn later that Elijah Muhammad's tales, like this one of Yaqub, infuriated the Muslims of the East. While at Mecca, I reminded them that it was their fault, since they themselves hadn't done enough to make real Islam known in the West. Their silence left a vacuum into which any religious faker could step in and mislead our people. Which is kind of strong words, considering, you know, he's still actually... At different points in the book, he's still very complimentary of Elijah Muhammad on a lot of things. But here he he talks about this as a vacuum in which, in which any religious faker could step in. And the implication is that Elijah Muhammad fits that bill. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. <laughs> well, and then uh, eventually Elijah Muhammad is, is caught in, a, in adultery. Uh, and what makes it even worse is that... He, Elijah Muhammad was brutal in getting rid of people who committed adultery who were who were under him. Uh, but then when he got caught in adultery, he would try to prepare the congregation by highlighting the failures of other biblical leaders. And to the point where here's here's a, a section, page 305 of, of the um, paperback. Mom, uh, Elijah Muhammad says, I'm David. When you read how David took another man's wife, I'm that David. You read about Noah who got drunk, that's me. You read about Lot who went and laid up with his own daughters. I have to fulfill all those things. 
into that, I just wrote, oh, oh my God. Yeah, that's, so that is the typical ravings of a cult leader who has found all sorts of ways to, to self-rationalize whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. Once you come to the conclusion that you are the, the, the glorious Savior and that you are God's instrument and can do no wrong, then whatever you, whatever you, uh, whatever you want can be rationalized. And Elijah Muhammad got to that point, it seems. Mm-hmm. And the, the very last thing that, would, that was, was just heart-wrenching to read, uh, at, at one point, Malcolm X is, is at a, a restaurant or something in, in Harlem, and, and a white uh, college-age woman comes up to him and, and says, what, what can I do to, to help the, the situation between whites and blacks? Um, and, and he looked at her and just said, there's nothing that you can do. And he, he later on in life said that was uh, an, another big regret of his, along with um, with lo- uh, ruining Laura, um, telling telling this this girl and just you know, she just kind of was crestfallen after that. But the, there's nothing you can do. Um, so th- just just a lot. I, I I wanted to highlight those things because there was so much that happened to him. There was a lot that he did, and then there was a lot that. You know, he has, he has this changed life and then things happen to him through that as well. And then through the nation of Islam, that's eventually assassins sent through them to, to kill him. Um, so just so much, so much tragedy, so much, uh, devastation and, and just so much disturbing content, but important content in, in, it, it, it just an amazing thing to read about about someone's life so not not fun to re- recount all that but um but did want to highlight before we got into some of our favorite quotes here yeah why don't you start out with your uh well actually i guess i, I probably have more as usual uh <laughs> on the list um all right yeah you, you start this out. There, there, he's got a number of like little funny one-liners in here uh actually some of them are uh mildly in some cases sometimes maybe a little bit more misogynistic that uh, I couldn't help but kind of chuckle at in certain cases uh, this one was about his mother uh, who was more educated than his father and you know he would uh, his father uh, would would at different points beat his mother and he said well you know to his knowledge some of that came because his mom would correct his dad on different things and you know he resented that she was better educated or whatever and he said here's the quote but an educated woman, I suppose. Uh, but an educated woman, I suppose, can't resist the temptation to correct an uneducated man. <laughs> and I, I just for his, his sort of wry humor at different points was was uh, very disarming. And that was one of those examples where it was like, yeah, well, we all can kind of understand that. And that's not you know obviously limited to just educated women. But the way he said it was just was 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 pretty funny. Um, the, the, my, my first quote is, uh, is part of, is from the epilogue and when he's talking to, to Alex Haley and, and so this wasn't in the, the main part of the book, but this was, um, through their discussions where, where, uh, Malcolm X would, would drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> yeah. I remember and this one. Alex Haley was, was asking about, um, uh, his coffee and how, how he drank his coffee. And he, Malcolm X would drink it with a lot of cream. And so his comment on that was, coffee is the only thing I like integrated. 
<laughs> which he said he said with a nice little smile, right? So you know, again, it, commenting Riley. Yeah, yeah, he's got a little. He's got a little. Uh, uh, he's definitely had a sense of humor at different points uh, that that came through in this book, despite the really serious subject matter and despite the passion for justice that you see throughout this. There is consistently that little that 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 thread of good humor that that comes through that uh, it's really refreshing in certain points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so th- here's one that again, just shows his candor. This is where he's talking about how right after he'd, he'd, uh, uh, you know, done his, um, done his hair up, he'd straightened his hair for the first time and he was so proud of it and how it looked. And he said, and he says of himself, I really was a, I was really a clown, but my ignorance made me think I was sharp. And you can see that that's one of his, that's one. So, He's he's self-deprecating at different points, but what really comes across, and you and, and it comes across in that in that statement, is his frustration over and over again at people who are satisfied with ignorance and people who won't who are not so easily awakened to realize that there's a bunch of injustice out there. There's a bunch of injustice right next to you. There's a bunch of injustice that is affecting you. And you're just happy, happy to go through life with, you know, with, without even noticing it. Like, you know, he, you can see him as that guy who just wants to go around to everyone and just shake them and, w- and say, wake up, wake up. Like, mm-hmm. think, think for a second. And even if you didn't agree with him on stuff, I get the sense that like he's and I think I've talked about it on this podcast before. I, I, I talk to I talk every so often about how. There's certain people that I meet where I feel like they're actually like they're awake. It's the only mm-hmm. way I can describe it. Like that person, when I talk to them, like that person is fully present, fully aware, fully awake. And there's a sharpness to that person that isn't there with everyone. And I really tend to respect and like being around those people. But they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're actually pretty rare. Being around people where I, I, I come across them and I'm like, this isn't just someone who's been to school and has learned the right manners and has done whatever. This is a person who actually actively considers and thinks all the time. Mm-hmm. And you get the, the sense that he's one of those people uh, in, in, in a lot of respects and just wants other people to do that. Now, at the same point, I think there's some limitations, uh, some interesting thing, interesting limitations that uh, I, I was a little surprised by through the book uh, that, that I'll bring up a little bit later, but that's one of the things that, that struck me is that he just, he's really frustrated about how ignorance just is the real enemy, con- is the constant enemy. And he's always trying to overcome his own ignorance. And, and that's, that's, that's a, an interesting sort of subtext or sub-thread, sub-theme throughout this book is this book is really him explaining this journey of like trying to overcome the ignorance that, to a large degree was imposed upon him by the circumstances of his life. And so the first part of the book is to explain like, how did I get so ignorant? And then now I'm trying to, you know, I've, I've, I've seen some light and I'm trying to push further and closer to, you know, further toward and closer to that light so that I, I can shake off this ignorance that I was, I was cursed with. And the rest of you all should join me. That, that seems to be a lot of where he goes with this. Yeah, and I think it's a lot more effective because it, it is that I've, I've been where you've been, and this is how I got out of it type of 
type of thing. And that, that ties in closely with my, uh, my next quote, which he's, he's asked, um, he's asked in, in an interview, what's, what's your alma mater? And, <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it's kind of a, I, I, I don't exactly recall, but I think it was presented in a way like you probably, you probably didn't go to college. It, it was, it was kind of like a, a cut. To, no, to no. He, he, people would actually ask him that question. Like th- this was, uh, he was talking about it. Um, uh, the, the, the full context of this is not long ago, an English writer telephoned me from London asking questions. One was, what's your alma mater? So it was yeah, actually a neutral said, question. It was a, a typical question that would be asked in okay. an interview. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but he did have some other cir- circumstances where they would try to trip him up. But yes, yeah, the, yes, that's I, later. I've forgotten the book. that this one, this one was a uh, uh, more legitimate one. And his response to that was books, <laughs> which is awesome. And there was there was another. What's your uh, alma mater? Books. Books. And 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 actually, in that same page, he has this comment where he says, um, uh, "What was it?" Uh, Uh, let's see. Well, right after that, he says, you'll never catch me with a free 15 minutes in which I'm not studying something I feel might be able to help the black man. Yeah. Yeah. But there's this, there's this other section where he says, um, uh, Oh yeah. In fact, prison enabled me to study far more intensively than I would have if my life had gone differently and I'd attended some college. Mm -hmm. I imagine that one of the biggest troubles with colleges is there are too many distractions too much panty raiding, fraternities, and bula bula and all that. Where else but prison could I have attacked my ignorance by being able to study intensely, sometimes as much as 15 hours a day? And he is dead on right. Trust me, I see, I see all this uh, stuff in, in college all the time. And yeah, he's, he's actually right. You know, when you're actually, when you don't have anything else that you're able to do other than study and you choose to do that, well, you know, like that... He, he took advantage of, a, in, in many ways, more exposure to education than uh, than the listeners of this podcast or, you know, even in, uh, the the hosts of this podcast in some respect. I mean, how many people out there can say that they he says Schopenhauer, you know, offhandedly Schopenhauer, Kant, Nietzsche. Naturally, I read all of those. Well, and, that, and the, <laughs> the rest of that quote that you just started there goes into something that you say all the time, that those those guys are, are responsible for yeah, the yeah. ideas that led to Nazism. And, yeah, he says, and, I don't respect hits, them. He hits that. I don't respect them. I'm just trying to remember some of those whose theories I soaked up in those years. These three, it's said, laid the groundwork on which the fa- fascist and Nazi philosophy was built. Yeah. And, yeah, well, you know, I'm not going not gonna to disagree with him. Yep. Uh, he met a guy in prison named Bimby. And he said, Bimby was the first man I had ever seen command total respect with his words. And they said Bimby was the li- the, libra- the prison library's best customer. Really interesting in, in that sense. And one other quote I have here. You will, you will be astonished to know how worked up convict debaters and audiences would get over subjects like, should babies be fed milk <laughs> yeah this was this is when he was talking about the you know the debate programs and things they had in prison and how how uh how, how well they they worked and how you know how important they were to his formation mm-hmm. well and then uh recently I, I, my wife mentioned this to me and i think yeah I, I, yeah i think it was her she uh there's a debate group from a prison that that uh 
yeah. went against Harvard's debate group in, in the prison group one. Yeah, this is not the first year that's happened, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, this is, that's happened more than once now. Huh. Uh, so, yeah, they, they, they won again. <laughs> so, um, all right. Um, next quote. And this one, again, is uh, one of those sort of interesting tongue-in-cheek comments, but it's not totally tongue-in-cheek for him here. He says, more wives could keep, could keep their husbands if they realized their greatest urge is to be men. <laughs> and he, he's, this is in the section where he's explaining that, that living in a building that was populated by a bunch of prostitutes taught him so much. And he, he, he basically says, you know, uh, uh, that, uh, that first of all, he learned a lot about women and women's psychology, some of which, you know, I, I kind of was blinking uh, to, to hear him say, because, you know, he's talking about, well, you know, every so often you have to be firm with a woman. Other, you know, you can't treat her nice all the time. Otherwise, she'll get ungrateful. But, you know, she wants you to be firm with her once in a while. Like, you know, I, I, I'm not going to try this out on my wife, you know, <laughs> tomorrow just because M Malcolm X said it. So, you know, but he does say here, that domineering, complaining, demanding wives who had just about psychologically castrated their husbands were responsible for the early rush to prostitutes. These early in the day, these wives were so disagreeable and had made their men so tense that they were robbed of the satisfaction of being men. To escape this tension and the chance of being ridiculed by his own wife, each of these men had gotten up early and come to a prostitute. These prostitutes, by contrast, had made it their, their business to be students of men. They said that after after most most men passed their virile twenties, they went to bed mainly to satisfy their egos, and because a lot of women don't understand it that way, they damage and wreck a man's ego. No matter how little virility a man has to offer, prostitutes make him feel for a time that he is the greatest man in the world. And actually, he's not entirely wrong there, based on my own discussions with men and some uh, and you know being a being a man myself, although I can't obviously access the feelings and thoughts of other men uh aside from what they say um but uh you know there's some interesting interesting stuff uh, on this some interesting uh research there's actually one uh set of books that my wife and i always buy for couples when they get engaged uh or give them as as uh, wedding gifts uh by uh, shanti and and uh jeff feldhan called for men only and for women only and the for women only book really spends a lot of time explaining you know women this is how men are wired and you know these some of the things that he says here uh in terms of men really just wanting you know basically not their ego not to be wrecked is a big part of this and uh and that that's uh that's a, an important way to show love and, and all that and i was a little surprised to see reflection on that sort of thing in this book but uh and it's again mixed with some tongue-in-cheek uh, comments, a little bit of perhaps misogynism, and then there's some of these nuggets that I, I would regard as actually more or less true. So, yeah, interesting. Well, and, and along those lines, he talks about, he said he learned about the white man from from these prostitutes, too. He, he would learn what what they were like and, the, you know, the, the, the worst parts of, 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 of people from, from hearing uh, what... <laughs> what the prostitutes would say about him. Yeah. I, what, what's the quote? I got my first schooling about the cesspool of morals, uh, uh, the cesspool morals of the white man from the best possible source, 
from his own women. And then as I got deeper into my own life of evil, I saw the white man's morals with my own eyes. I even made my living helping to guide him to the sick things he wanted. Here's one on on, uh, North versus the South. And here it goes. Yes, I will pull off that liberal's halo that he spends such effort cultivating. The North liberals have been for so long pointing accusing fingers at the South and getting away with it that they have fits when they are exposed to the world's worst hypocrites. And I included this one, obviously, speaking of the United States, the North and, and the South, and, and how uh, the South is, is, is usually labeled as the more racist uh, part of the country. Uh, I, usually, I well, it's labeled the more racist part of the country, typically by people in the North. In the, yeah, but in, 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 in I grew up... proud in, not to have been part of the, you know, the part that, saw, that fought for slavery, right? Yeah, and, and I grew up in Minnesota. I, I spent the first 14 years of my life there, and, and then I've spent the rest in, in Atlanta, and um, I, 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 I saw the same attitudes in, in both places. I, say, I, I saw this, the... The, the bad in in both places and and it, it always struck me being in it in atlanta um how, how you could you could feel that that finger pointing in in a way from from the north uh but it, it it's everywhere it's it's not one place over another uh it might have different ways it's it's uh lived out or acted out but it, it, it's it's the same everywhere and, and it's pointed out so much in this book that um, of the places that he spent a lot of time uh, in Detroit Boston and in New York that uh, that 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 these things were going on on everywhere yeah and and actually in my experience there's it's it's interesting because you know I I, I uh, grew up a, a good portion of my upbringing was in southern Indiana and uh, the the racism that I encountered in some of the rural areas of southern Indiana was was more uh, vitriolic and, and and a more to- you know it was it was worse than anything I've seen say it, than anything that I saw in in Florida when I lived there in the Panhandle of Florida which is really South Georgia mm-hmm. uh, worse than anything that I've I've seen. In uh, in North Carolina, although you know you drive out into some of the uh, some of the or in my case bike uh, out into some of the uh, rural areas of North Carolina, and you start seeing you know those uh, co- uh, Confederate flags and different things flying around, but there was some pretty vile racism in Southern Indiana. I mean that mm-hmm. was you know there there were, there were outright KKK members and people who called me all sorts of names because I had black friends and. You know, it's the it's the kind of thing that uh, my impression of this has been that in many respects, the North never really had to come to grips with their racism in the way that the South did. So the South, there was this overt like, yeah, well, you know, there were slaves and you were beating them and, you know, you fought a war to to uh, to preserve the institution of slavery. And we were above that. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, but you were still engaged in all sorts of things to subjugate and subject uh, not just black people, but generally uh, generally black people to the dominant white uh, uh, upper classes 
in your in your cities. Boston and, ju- and just just sixty years ago. Yeah, and well, not just sixty talking, years ago. Yeah, We're talking yeah. about you know even even twenty or thirty years ago in some of this stuff. And 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 yeah. I mean, you look at you look at the. Uh, Go to Chicago and look at the housing laws from 20 or 30 years ago and where people, you know, how people were shown around and, you know, uh, the, you know, the issues with getting mortgages and so on. That stuff's that stuff's within our lifetimes for sure. Mm -hmm. And it's it was it was thoroughly racist and there's still issues with it. You go to Boston. And to this day, Boston is extremely racist. So, I mean, this stuff has not died down. It has not disappeared. It, I think it has lessened by and large. And I think that, that the, uh, the, the emboldening of it that we've seen uh, in, in, you know, after or during the election and after the election of Donald Trump, you've seen more overt stuff with you know, various white supremacist marches and things like this. I, I do think I don't think those are actually signs that it's increasing. I think that those are in some senses signs of panic by the many racists that are still out there that they're losing. But mm. at the same point, it's further evidence that this still is there. It still exists. And there's still a, a critical enough mass that people feel OK about just uh, about marching in, in, in these kinds of things. So it's still there. And and many of these rallies and many of these marches are happening in the north now. And what but what happened is the people in the north never had to look themselves in the mirror and say, "Okay, well, you know, what do I you know, how should I how am I treating uh, you know, the the my my black neighbor who, you know, lives in the district a little bit further over because, you know, I moved away once black people started in my neighborhood." I mean, I remember when I moved to when when I moved to Ohio, when I moved to Toledo, Ohio, when we moved into uh, we lived there for a little while, and then we ended up buying a house there. We bought a house, and the next door neighbor to the house, you know, we were asking him how uh, how the uh, how, you know about the neighborhood and all this, and he was like, "Well, you know, it's real, it's always been nice or whatever, but you know, the neighborhood's changing." And he kind of cocked his head over towards the house, one over beyond him. And we all just kind of like, oh, wow, did he just seriously do that? Because what he meant by the neighborhood's changing is there was a black family that lived next to him. He was like, mm, you know, the neighborhood's changing. And, you know, he was saying this in a derogatory manner. It's like, oh, my goodness. This was in the 1990s. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, but I don't think the North ever really had to deal with the fallout of a lot of this stuff and the way that the south it it was it was much more obvious when you're when 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 this stuff was put on television and it was more overt and yes there's still a lot of it remaining in the south but a lot of it had to be faced up to a little or in, a little bit differently than in the north so it was able to fester below the below the uh, the surface in the north in ways that it couldn't in the south it was more on the surface in the south so it was there it's a little private rant of mine, but anyway, <laughs> back to back to quotes. Yeah, <laughs> you want to hit one? Yeah, why not? Um, huh. So she knew from exper- from personal experience how crime existed only to the degree that the law cooperated with it. She showed me how in the country's entire political social or enti- entire social political and economic structure 
the criminal, the law, and the politicians were actually inseparable partners. And who is the she in this? This sentence? is this is uh, 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 his boss's wife. Uh, uh, let's see. This was um, trying to remember. This was the woman who had been Dutch Schultz's secretary. Uh, this was when he was when he was uh, running running. He was working as a, a, a numbers runner. Uh, the the wife of the of the guy who was running the illegal numbers game. Okay. Explained to him how all this works, and it and and it, and it says she would talk to me about the Dutch Schultz days, about deals that she'd known, about graft paid to officials, rookie cops, and shyster lawyers, right up on into the top levels of police and politics. And that's where this quote then starts. She knew from personal experience how crime existed only to the degree that the law that the law cooperated with it. She showed me how in the country's entire social, political, and economic structure that criminal, the law, and the politicians were actually inseparable partners. Mm. And, and I think that's, again, it's true. And, and, and I think there's no better example of that than the current drug war. Who are the people who don't want drugs to be legalized most of all? The drug companies. <laughs> well, uh, well, I'm not, not necessarily... Pharmaceuticals. Well, pharmaceutical companies are, would be would be one potential. I mean, maybe I would say that the people who who least want drugs to be legalized are law enforcement, politicians, and the people who actually run illegal drug organizations, cartels, and so on. Mm. Why? Because they're the ones that are benefiting from it on all sides. It's the bootlegger Baptist problem. If you're not familiar with that, um, again, we'll, we we can put a, a link to that in the show notes. Um, where you have uh, uh, the issue, uh, it, this goes back to, to prohibition, uh, where the basically the people who were most in favor of, of keeping prohibition, of keeping alcohol illegal, were the, you know, the Baptists, as it were, right? You know, the, it's a short, shorthand for these teetotaler uh, religious, generally, uh, uh, people who who believe that it was evil and therefore should be uh should be illegal just on the ver on the virtue of it being bad so if it's bad it should be illegal so those people for you know out of keeping people away from what's evil and then the other people who are really interested in maintaining its illegality were the bootleggers <laughs> yeah. because the bootleggers made money hand over fist you know your al capones of the world they made money because it was illegal they made a ton more money because it was illegal and because their organizations were willing to take the additional risk for all the extra money that they would make. And once again, you find that the law, it's only where the law turns the other way and where, where those who are making the money on, uh, you know, in, in criminal ways, uh, those who make money off of crime and then find ways to filter that to the people who should be enforcing the rules against it, the, that's, that's how this all exists crime only exists to the extent that the law permits it and that that corruption cooperates with it I, I, I found that to be really interesting yeah my next one it was when i first began to perceive the white man as commonly used means complexion only secondarily primarily it described attitudes and actions so the, the whole book it, it or the first part of the book is, is all about how 
the the evil the white man is. Uh, and and but no, then, no, not just the white white man, the blue eyed white devil. Yeah. And I just want to point out that between the two of us, <laughs> there's me. only one of us that has blue eyes. Yep. And yep. it's not me. So just saying. <laughs> Uh, but this this goes into the, his uh, where where he would he would change his mind, and this comes after his he he does a, a pilgrimage to to Mecca, and for the first time it meets other white people that are that are not in the states, that are not uh, to him racist, and this is where he makes that comment that uh, white man means complexion secondarily, but primarily. It means attitudes and actions. So if he's describing it in, in the negative sense, the white man, it's the attitude and action, not not necessarily the color. Yeah, it's white uh, culture, as it were. Mm-hmm. It's the dominant. It's what we would today call systemic racism. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the things that, that benefit those who fit particular cultural pattern that's attached to complexion in the West in particular. But he says, you know, I met really good people that, treated me like an equal who had light skin. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they weren't the white man that I was accustomed to talk, that I've talked about earlier in the book, as it were. Yeah. You want, what's your next one? All right. So the next one, um, any person who claims to have deep feeling for other human beings should think a long, long time before he votes to have other men kept behind bars caged. I'm not saying there shouldn't be prisons, but there shouldn't be bars. Behind bars, a man never reforms. He will never forget. He never will get completely over the memory of the bars. Wow. Again, a nice statement about uh, that, that gets to the justice of the matter. And I thought that was really, really, really uh, uh, well, well, well said. Mm-hmm. This was a, a interesting one towards the end of the book. Aside from the basin, basic African dialects, I would try to learn Chinese because it looks as if Chinese will be the most powerful political language in, of the future. And already I have been, get, begun studying Arabic, which I think is going to be the most powerful spiritual language of the future. So there was some insight there. Uh, this is in the, the late or the mid 1960s, and um, saying he would learn Chinese because it will be the most powerful political language of the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, he could see that they were going to be uh, a, an increasing portion of the of the world population, which, you know. Mm-hmm. Although the one-child policy has really put a dent in that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, let's see. Ooh, yeah, another one. This one's kind of devastating. I read, I saw how the white man never has gone among the non-white peoples bearing the cross in the true manner and spirit of Christ's teachings, meek, humble, and Christ-like. First, Mm. always religiously, he branded heathen and pagan labels upon ancient non-white cultures and civilizations. The stage thus set, he turned upon his non-white victims, his weapons of war. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No denying that. Here's my last one. Uh, you're, you're tr- you trust them, and I don't. This is Malcolm X speaking to Alex Haley. 
You studied what he wanted you to learn about him in schools. I studied him in the streets and in prison where you see the truth. Huh. That gets back to to um, what we were, we were saying earlier where, where he said he learned he learned about the white men from from their women and, and from prostitutes and from dealing with them in the sense of, of taking them to prostitutes, taking them to get drugs. Um, and so I thought that was a pretty pretty interesting quote that was not not in the main part of the book but in the, the epilogue and in something that that uh, Malcolm said directly to Alex yeah yeah well two two more from me one quick one uh, goes back to your is the same page as your what's your alma mater books one as I see it today the ability to read awoke inside me some long dormant craving to be mentally alive not just the ability, I mean, because he could read, but the ability to really read. This hmm. was after he copied out the entire dictionary, dictionary. by yeah. hand to learn, to learn stuff while he was, to, to learn new words so that he could actually read and understand while he was in prison. The ability to read, the ability to really read awoke inside me some long dormant craving to be mentally alive. I, I, I love that, that quote, and especially in a podcast where we're, spending so much time talking about books and about reading and the impact of that, that seems to be a good, a good, uh, good quote yeah. uh, for our, our purposes. Uh, also, uh, my final quote, for evil to bend its knees, admitting its guilt, to implore the forgiveness of God is the hardest thing in the world. Yeah, I almost had that in my, my favorites. And that's really the, the turning point in the book. Yep. Yep. And you see that he, he himself has to acknowledge like the way I've been, what I have been has been evil and I need to bow my knee. And he talks about that. That's, that's the hard step. Once you take that step, then you get what Christians would call grace, what he doesn't refer to by that term, but basically, uh, you know, you, you take one step and, Allah or God takes two steps towards you. That's, that's, that's his, his view, you know, that you, you receive assistance, divine assistance at the moment that you choose to bow your knee. So, all right. Um, I believe we've come to what I'm, what is surely the listener's favorite portion of the podcast, (laughs) which is Eric's favorite word. (laughs) We need it. We need a jingle for this. Yeah. Uh, and it's a common da, da, da. word. And we're we're hearing this word quite often right now in 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 the news cycle, which I'm not listening to, but I, I do hear I do hear the word thrown thrown around. And the word, you ready? The word is demagogue. demagogue. But as Malcolm X points out in the book, all that demagogue actually means is teacher of the people. <gasps> God forbid. We don't want the people to be taught. So it, it, uh, I, I just found that to be interesting. It, it's obviously a common word. Most, most of my favorite words are ones I haven't heard before. This one's a like common fuck one. idiot. Fuck idiot. But um, I, I thought it was interesting that he points out that it simply means teacher of the people. We've received now, one listener suggestion. Connotation. We've, we've received one listener suggestion, by the way, that uh, we, we do uh, hats and T-shirts with fuck idiot on them. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I think well, we may we need to do, do this. I could do that. Um, so yeah, the word obviously has a different connotation when it when it's used, but 
It might be good to point out every now and then when people throw that word around. It just means teacher of the people. Yeah, although its connotation is a little different now. Yeah, yeah. Yep. All right, so um, we've talked about a lot of stuff that's already in you know what we would normally classify as the more detailed section, but there are some other things that I, that we should we should discuss before we wrap this. So let's go ahead and get into the more detailed section of the, of, of of our discussion here. Yeah, and I, I want to read why he's called Malcolm X. Yeah, and good place I'm gonna, to do I'm that. Read that that uh, that paragraph in the book. Uh, so as you mentioned earlier, his 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 birth name was was Malcolm Little. Uh, so the here's he goes into it. The Muslim X symbolized the true African family name that he never could know. For me, my X replaced the white slave master's name of Little, which some blue-eyed devil named Little had imposed upon my paternal forebears. The receipt of my X meant that forever after in the nation of Islam. I would be known as Malcolm X. Mr. Muhammad taught that we would keep this X until God himself returned and gave us a holy name from his own mouth. So that's why, um, that's why he has the name Malcolm X. And it's, you know, again, once again, a devastating reminder of the reality of the level of injustice perpetrated upon his antecedents, uh, on, on those who came before him and his family. And you know it's uh, uh, <laughs> it. What a reminder! I mean, just 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 a simple change serves as that reminder. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there's really only um, we, we've covered pretty much everything else that I, I wanted to, t- to talk about. It, uh, and we even mentioned this, but I just wanted to say it once again that that he he knew he was going to die. I mean, and he knew it was going to be violent. And and what was interesting, it, it it was it was from his words. It wasn't it wasn't him. I mean, he. I think he even hints on this that he he should have been dead many times in his his early life from from what he was involved in and and um, the people he was around. He, there are a lot of chances for him to die there. There was no reason for him to to make it out of his teens. Yeah, one. Uh, it, it is shocking. Some. I mean, it's one of those things. Like when when I was reading at different points. I don't know if this happened to you, but when I was reading at different points in when he's talking about his earlier life before prison, I'm thinking of like I'm envisioning like this is a mid late twenties. You know, he's in his in his thirties by this point, and then he's like, and then I turned eighteen. Yeah. Or and then I turned seventeen, and you're like, and went to prison. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And like he's running around with this white woman, this married white woman, for years, from the time that he's like fifteen. Well, and he, and he was he was very tall, and so he he always passed. There was one part really interesting about him not having to go to war. Uh, he so his height made it so that he could get into places that he shouldn't have because of his age. Yeah, no one questioned his age when he actually tried to pass as eighteen or twenty-one. Yeah, but then, but then his age kept him out of the war, even though he looked like he he could have been. Yeah, because he was only sixteen at the time. Would have been drafted. Yeah. Yeah. So. Fifteen, sixteen. So, uh, but at the same point, like he he what 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 was he? He was sixteen when he was uh when he was doing the um, uh when he was doing the um the 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 work on the train, which he had to be mm-hmm. twenty one to do. He passed yeah. as as twenty one for that, and the one the 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 white woman that he w- that he'd been with for years thought he was in his in his 20s when she first 
picked him off the dance floor and and basically made him her paramour. And he was like 15. Mm -hmm. Which actually the amount of statutory rape in this book is unsettling to a 21st century audience, I'm sure, just in itself, because, you know, you have, you know, 15 year old girls, 15 year old boys that are in, you know, engaged in these various uh, affairs and so on. And, you know, they're they're working regular jobs and they're passing as adults and they're having adult relationships in ways that today, um, you know, anybody who would be involved in these, the, the older party in these would be getting locked up without question. Mm -hmm. And it's just it, it's interesting to see how much how much has changed since the 1940s on this. Uh, because, I mean, he is, <laughs> like I said, he, it, it, when he is 16, 17, 18 years old, he's engaged in various hustles and so on at that point. And he's, he's had to become so streetwise that it just, it, it doesn't even sound imaginable for a 16 year old or for a 17 year old to have already worked the jobs that he's worked and engaged in the various hustles that he's engaged in and all this stuff. But it's because he was able to pass and nobody questioned it. Mm -hmm. So I, I found that interesting. So nitty gritty, what stuck out? Would what stood out to you? One other thing I, I I did want to get to is, and I think this might have been because of his age in certain places. So so because he finished, he, he didn't go back to school after after eighth grade, um, and because of his age when he started really doing more stuff, where he was so much younger. So he was running in much older crowds, but was always the young, the young one. And people didn't even necessarily know that he was the young one. I, I found, I found it interesting that, that I'm not sure he intended to, to put it this way, but, but his life in a lot of ways seems to be, seemed to me to be of someone who went from kind of one idol slash mentor to the next. So what would happen is he'd be he'd go from one place where he idolized one person and really wanted to be like that person and then either failed to do that or just eventually, you know, outgrew it or, or whatever and moved on to the next one. Uh, and he'd go from like one one idol to the next one person that he really admired and, and, and emulated to the next person. Uh, starting with his oldest brother, who was a or his older brother, who was a uh, who, who was a, a boxer, and he decided, oh, he's doing really really well with that, so I'll get into the ring. And then he got he got got beaten pretty one, badly, like so one, he decided, yeah, yeah. So he decided, yeah, maybe that's not for me. But then when he got to Boston, he falls in with uh, with Shorty, who becomes you know the guy that he really admires and emulates to the point where, you know, he gets, you know, a zoot suit and, you know, starts to really uh, get into the into the uh, uh, Lindy hopping and, and he starts doing drugs and all this other stuff because it's what Shorty does. And Shorty shows him the ropes. And so he imitates and emulates Shorty until Wait, uh, it's in, uh, just to break in here real quick with his description of white people dancing was classic. <laughs> That's so true. He said that they, they learn how to dance to where it looks like they're wind up toys that just do the same thing over and over again. Yes. It's pretty funny. Uh, yeah. Whereas, whereas black people just let their soul out, he says. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> their bodies, um, again, using different language uh, than, than, than we would here, but, um, <laughs> 
but uh, but no, he um, and, and actually that was another thing that that struck me is how essentializing he was at different points. I mean, unashamedly, like black people are this way by nature. This is just how it is. White people are this way by nature. This is just how it is. And there is a certain amount where he he was he was sort of the flip side on certain things to the very sorts of things that were culturally thought at the time. Uh, and, and, you know, that, well, you know, this is just essentially how black people are. They ha- they're, they're, they're made this way as opposed to this way. Uh, I found that interesting. But anyway, he goes from Shorty, who he admires and he emulates for a couple years in Boston, or for a year maybe, or whatever. And then when he gets to New York, he says he winds up in, you know, this one, uh, this one little bar or tavern and just a little bit of time there, and all of a sudden, his entire infatuation or admiration for all the stuff that he'd been doing in Boston just vaporized. And now it was New York, and now it was a couple of the people there. And and then by the time he gets back with Shorty, like a year and a half later, two years later, he's almost unrecognizable because he's emulated and imitated the people that he's with in New York. And then from there, you know, he he doesn't exactly have a mentor. Uh, at that point, that's when when he gets himself in trouble. Uh, he's not Im- Im- imitating someone who he's with at that point. He be- kind of becomes the boss of the little gang that's doing uh, doing all the, uh, the the burglaries. But then when he gets in prison, he finds Bimby, right? And Bimby is the is the magnetic, uh, charismatic person that he sees command total respect. And so then he emulates Bimby, right? And then. From Bimbi, he gets exposed to Elijah Muhammad, and then Elijah Muhammad becomes the one that he emulates and imitates, and you know, and and, and becomes his acolyte. And then eventually, he outgrows that and becomes disenchanted with with uh, with, with uh, Elijah Muhammad's um, uh, hypocrisy on certain things, and then finally winds up. Uh, becoming an acolyte of the Sunni Islam movement as a whole rather than one single guru. But it does seem to me that he goes from sort of one figure that he holds on a pedestal, and you could even put El, right, his, uh, uh, Ella, his, uh, his half-sister, before Shorty, right? When he meets Ella, prior to that, he had been happy and had been, you know, studious in eighth grade or whatever, but then he meets Ella and some of those around her and he goes back to Boston and he's discontented and, sati- and and dissatisfied with that because he idolizes Ella. He gets mm-hmm. to Ella and then he idolizes Shorty. And then from Shorty, he goes and idolizes a couple of the people in, in New York. And from there, he winds up in prison after you know going back to Boston for a little bit. And then he idolizes Bimby and then, uh, and then Elijah Muhammad and so on. And I found that it was interesting how malleable he was depending on what charismatic influence was in his life that I found surprising because he was himself such a charismatic figure and he was himself a a person around whom a movement really grew but at the same point I got the impression throughout this book that he was himself in so many ways a follower not a leader most of his life almost his entire life you could actually argue his entire life do you think with Muhammad though with Elijah Muhammad where he has the the change uh, when when Muhammad is is committing adultery to where he 
he confronts him? Do you think that's almost the that's a big turning point, point for him? Yeah, yeah, where where he be kind of not that he ha- wasn't his own man before, but he he really you know he's no. I think you can argue that he wasn't his own man before that. Because, I mean, he, even when, when he's thinking about marriage, like, he basically lays it before Elijah Muhammad for permission. Yeah. Like, he really isn't... It's interesting. He's not his own man. Like, he's he doesn't permit himself to become his own man. He's always, he's always the guy who is really sharp, really smart, but he's always looking around out of the corner of his eyes to see what everybody else is doing, and then he copies that. Hmm. Up into and, and and specifically, he copies the one who gets the most respect. What can get me the most respect? Right? Who are the mm-hmm. ones that I want to emulate? And so, you know, he sees in Boston that it's these hip hip cats that are wearing the zoot suits and doing the Lindy Hop and doing some drugs. And so, I'm going to be like them. And then in New York, you know, these basically underworld gangsters <laughs> that mm-hmm. he starts working with, and you know, then he imitates them. And then eventually he imitates Bimby and, and he does work his way up, but it seems like he latches on to a figure until he finds another figure that's bigger and better and more charismatic. And then he follows that one. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that he is throughout this, throughout this book, right up until, right up until his break with Elijah Muhammad, I think you can make the case that he is really a follower throughout this book who becomes an acolyte of various people for good and then or for ill and then later for for better in mm-hmm. terms of you know Bimbi's impact on him was immeasurably good mm-hmm. and then you know much of what Elijah Muhammad gets him to do in terms of pushing uh you know a message of justice whether you agree with the uh and I think most people today would disagree with the nationalist or separatist aspect of of what he was preaching at that point but and and he himself came to disagree with with much of that late you know right before uh, his death but you know he 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 seems to fall into whatever is really attractive and wh- whatever is gaining respect and is 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 attractively different and then follows that at different points through his life in ways that I was I I just was I found myself surprised by that yeah it's interesting I, I, it didn't stick out to me but yeah I mean looking at it definitely see that and and i don't think that's the way necessarily he thought of it but he does tell his story sort of that way that it's from one mm-hmm. imitating one person to imitating the next and and i wonder whether or not that's that's sort of how he imagined it is imitate well, imi- that lifetime of imitation up until he started to really get some real sense of illumination or enlightenment toward the end there where he started to feel as though he was himself becoming more than just a, a follower of other men, but was actually starting to come into his own as a, as, as, you know, into enlightenment as it were. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in, in I, I can't remember if it's when he's in Boston or New York, but he goes back home to Detroit and he's wearing his suits and he's wearing, you know, he's, he's acting suits, and, yes. and yeah, speaking like he does wherever he's living at that time. And hey, yo, the, daddy was popping. <laughs> The, the response is that people want his autograph. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a drastic change from what, what anyone's used to that, that they want his autograph, which is precisely um, what he was going for. Right. He's always mm-hmm. trying to find that respect. 
And that's where I think that Bimby quote of of what he saw in Bimby in prison ties into that, where where he said, Bimby was the first man I had ever seen command total respect with his words. Because when, when Malcolm X goes back to Detroit, he's he's commanding respect, but it's because he's got a suit or the way he's talking or the way he's acting. It's all the accoutrement. The, yeah. the, the various uh, the, the various trappings of uh, worldly success, and he comes later on, and, and it's really the the in, the encounter with Bimby is really what changes everything more than anything else. He sees that it's not actually having all the stuff or dressing different or talking jive, and you know, got me thinking at different points in this book about that scene in an airplane. If you've seen it, yeah. like, do you speak jive? Oh, I speak jive, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> but, um, you, you know, he, he gets to the place where he, 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 I think in that moment or in that encounter with Bimby, he, he comes into that realization that carrying, carrying the guns, dressing, spe- you know, specific ways, talking specific ways, isn't what really gains real respect that, the, that what Bimby had was something more than that. Mm-hmm. And so that's then he becomes his acolyte and he becomes he begins to study and all that himself. I, and I just found that fascinating that and, and, you know, this is not to say this is not as a criticism of Malcolm X as, oh, he was just a follower. Because to some degree, we're all like that. It just happened to stick out in the way that this story was told. And what that does to what that did for me as I read it is it reinforced how important it is that. First of all, we recognize our role as the mentors of those around us, of the examples of those around us, that we should be commanding respect by by living the way, you know, living, living good lives and pursuing justice. And also recognizing that we have a tendency, we all have a tendency to look around, to, to look for what is most likely to get us respect. And if we're not careful, we can very easily be led astray into being starry-eyed about the wrong things. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think there, there's a lot of that in this book, and, and, and it's another lens to kind of bring to this book if, if you do read it. And I, and I, I highly recommend that anybody li- listening to this podcast who hasn't read it, you should read this book. Mm-hmm. But that's one, of the, one, other, one other sort of filter, one other lens to, to bring to this is look at the influences in his life Look, and, and, you know, so much of what he has to say is about the impact of society and culture on who we become and how the unjust culture that the white man had built in, 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 in and continues to sustain in the United States leads to disadvantaging and, and basically the, uh, the um, uh, impoverishment of, of these various underclasses, not just blacks, but others, um, he basically says, you know, that a lot of the book is about that aspect of it. But the other part about this is that even on a more micro scale, the culture that we're building by our own presence reinforces itself. And also who we choose to follow and who we choose to get starry eyed over impacts our lives that way. So I, I found that whole thing to be very interesting. Yeah, micro and macro levels there. Yeah. Well, should we hit a, a few more and then wrap it up? Yeah, I think it's. I think we can hit the big picture. Okay. 
Yeah, I um, it, it was a hard book to read. It, it was really hard. Yeah. I mean, uh, just very disturbing and and uh, so much evil done to him, done by him, embedded in society, uh, within the religious leaders, uh, just throughout the book. Just so much evil, so much, so much disturbing content. Uh, but it's it's an important book, and and as you just said, I I, I would recommend. I would recommend reading it. It was, yeah, you know, not, not you're happy. Oh, I feel good about reading this book, but, but man, it was important. It was, it was an important read. Um, not I, every book we read should be one that agrees with our presuppositions or makes us comfortable. Many of the books that we mm-hmm. should read are ones that should make us uncomfortable. And this one is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, actually, uh, when I put the um, review of the book up on the Books of Titans website, we got one comment where uh, a lady wrote, thank you for this review. Sometimes it's difficult to read harsh realities others endured or even even fathom believe uh, systems so vastly different than our, than our own. Uh, but to bear down and get a good look from the path from which one came, even that can take courage. Uh, so there was definitely... Definitely a good good book in that sense. There, one one thing I want to highlight that that was <laughs> just amazing about the book in itself is there's an amazing there's a great scene where he's he's speaking at the Harvard Law School and he looks out the window as he's giving his speech and he can see one of his old hideouts during his life of crime when he when he lived in Boston and just that that um, that difference in where he is and he even makes the comment you know if 10 when, when he's in that bo- uh, part of boston of his life and, and he's saying if you had told me 10 15 years from now that i'd be speaking at harvard <laughs> you know i would, I would have laughed at you uh but just part of the the incredible life of of this man uh i, I, I was told by somebody that a good book to read in conjunction with this one is uh, the more recent Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention by Manning Marble. Uh, he, I guess, points out some of the liberties that were taken in the, the autobiography. Um, so if, if you are interested in reading reading this one and, and just want kind of a, a, a broad, broad view of, of the man, um, would be to read his autobiography and then also to read this more, more recent book uh, that, that is... I guess come come across more um, more recent findings or or interviews or that sort of thing, uh, if if that's of interest to you. But uh, what what were your your main takeaways from the the book? Well, first of all, that I I think this is one of those books that every high schooler should read. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you haven't read it by the time you're done with college, you, you need to read it. This is again, this is a, like you said, it's a hard book to read. Uh, but one of the benefits of reading is that it gives you the ability to inhabit someone else's world and to actually feel a little bit of what it's like to be another person. And this is one of those books that even though some liberties were taken in the telling of the story, it does get you in the, in the mind, in the, you know, it sort of places you in the shoes of someone who lived a very different life than any of the, any of us, no one listening to this book has lived, you know, has walked in, in shoes like what uh, Malcolm X did. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the world is just very different. 
but understanding that we were right. That's where we were 60 years ago. I mean, this is not very long ago. I mean, our parent. This is this is our parents. Were, you know, when when our parents were just before our, uh, or you know, he died after both of our parents were were born. You know, this is not very long ago, and so much of this still remains embedded in our society. Just just having to come to to grips with that and encountering that, is, I, I think, is a very important thing for us to be who we should be in society. And no, I, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think uh, most readers are going to agree with much of what he says, particularly in sections of the book where he's, he's really pushing for separatism and so on. I, I don't think that, that, that people are going to find that all that compelling, but at the same point, the sentiment and the, 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 the you know, it's very easy as soon as you read this to go, yeah, he's kind of got a point though, mm-hmm. that lots of the stuff that... We would look at as, you know, oh, well, you know, segregation was an unmitigated good. Yeah, well, look at what segregation or, or uh, desegregation is an unmitigated good, I should say. Uh, we look at that and we say, yeah, you know, desegregation was great. You know, that was a big victory. Yeah, well, except that look at what happened to the black schools and to the black teachers when schools were deseg- desegregated. All these good black teachers who had had major impacts on their, on their black students all those teachers lost their jobs. These black students were integrated into white schools and then these black teachers weren't hired at those white schools. And so now all of a sudden you have black students that are in environments where they're not getting the attention and the benefits that they got. So it's just little things like that that you have to come to grips with in reading something like this and certain other things that you go, man, you know, even the stuff that we try to do right, it's just so easy for us to get it wrong. And that's that's an important, important lesson. And it's important to understand how people can come to be where they're at and to 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 be more aware of the the, the sorts of things that we need to be able to do, that we need to uh, that that we should be concerned with and that we should take action for uh, if, if we're going to be for a more just society. So I, I think this is like I said, I think this is the kind of book that needs to be read by everybody. Mm hmm. Well, good. Well, that's that's going to do it for us today. We uh, we are now at the halfway point. We've we've gotten through half of the uh, the fifty two books. This was book twenty six. So thanks for uh, for sticking with us. And and uh, if if you want more information, you can go to booksoftitans.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Books of Titans as well. You can subscribe to the podcast in in any of the podcast players, and we'd love. Uh, a, a review if if you'd like to to do one uh, itunes would be a great great place for that uh in the next few weeks uh i will be releasing our list of books for 2018 as i mentioned in, in last week's podcast episode so keep an eye out for that we'll we'll uh, note that on on instagram or or twitter when when that is is released and We'd love for you to join along with us. I've gotten a few comments on Instagram that uh, that 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 some of you are are taking on a project like this for 2018, uh, based on on what we've been doing here with Books of Titans, and and so that's exciting. And and if you want to read along in the same books, that that'd be extra exciting. And we'd love to get your comments on them as as we read through them as well. So next week we'll be back with Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. 
On behalf of Jason Staples, I'm Eric Rostet, and this has been the Books of Titans podcast. Thanks for listening. Keep reading, keep listening, and keep improving. And keep it real.